Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. All right, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, where we left off last week. We're on verse 22. As you're finding John 6, verse 22, in just a moment, I'm going to pray for us one more time before we get into the Word. And I'm going to pray for our nation. We're celebrating, not celebrating, we're remembering 20 years of, of being at war and the terrible events of September 11th. And I think of this room being full of people who have given much of their lives to defending our nation. And so I'm going to pray for us. And then I'm going to pray that God would help us see and understand this passage today. I'm not good at introductions, but I will say this. That if you understand this passage, if we understand John 6, we are well on our way to understanding the message of the Bible. So let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for life and breath. You were not obligated to wake any of us up this morning, but you did in your kindness another day to love you, to serve you, to glorify you, or to find you or to be found by you. Father, I thank you that this room is full of people, first responders, police officers, and firefighters, and military families, the type of people who run to danger, not away from it. Lord, thank you for that. Lord, thank you for our nation. As imperfect as it is, we are so grateful for it. Give us an appropriate sense of what it means to be a citizen of this nation as we long and remember our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. Father, as we look at this passage today, would you convict us and comfort us? Would you wound us and would you heal us and would you show us your son? That's what we need most today. And we pray it all in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm going to start reading in verse 22. We're going to get to eventually verse 35. Along the way, I'm going to stop, and then we're going to end with a few reflections. Now, what is verse 22? Just to give you a little context, if you're just jumping in with us, John 6 is one of the highlights of the whole gospel of John. It's a, it's a monumental chapter, and we're working our way through this gospel. John 6 started off with probably one of the most famous miracles of Jesus, certainly the most public miracle of Jesus, where he, out of just a few loaves of bread and a couple fish, feeds thousands of people, 5,000 men plus women and children, maybe 10,000 people. And then what we looked at last week was he follows that up by walking on the water to his disciples in the middle of the night during a storm. And now where we pick up in verse 22 is the next day where the crowd that he has just fed is going to encounter Jesus and they have some questions for him. And the question that the crowd asks him in this passage sets up really what is called the bread of life discourse or Jesus' sermon or speech or thoughts on what has happened. So the miracle 
of the feeding of the multitudes is now explained by Jesus in the rest of the passage, in the rest of John chapter 6. And instead of just handling it all together, because it all sort of fits together, I want us to take it sort of paragraph by paragraph or chunk by chunk, because it is such an important portion of John and really the whole Bible. So let's start reading in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea. So again, just the context, this is after the feeding of the multitudes, the middle of the night, Jesus has walked on the water, joined his disciples who left earlier by boat, and now they're on the other side of this lake or the Sea of Galilee is what it was called. The crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks, meaning the multiplication of the, the fish and the loaves. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, just a couple things before we move on. I think, that, I think this is just straightforward enough. It's, it's clear enough. This crowd has followed Jesus into the wilderness. And, you know, I do kind of wonder, like, they, they came from a town and they were so caught up with the teaching of Jesus, they lost sort of track of time that it just kind of ended up being like a big bivouac. You know, they're just out there. And now they wake up. Jesus is not there the disciples have gone. They're looking for Jesus, which is natural. He's just fed them. They probably want a little bit more of whatever this miracle worker has. And so they're seeking Jesus, and they realize he's not there. The disciples had left, and so there's kind of, they're kind of confused. And they, they themselves go to the other side of the lake, and they find him. So implicit in this, even though Jesus' walking on the water was only something that he did in front of his disciples, they're kind of maybe piecing it together, thinking, how did Jesus get here? I mean, how did this happen? We, we were with him, and the disciples left without him, and now he's here. We didn't see any other boats leave. And so there's this implicit understanding that maybe they're grappling with the fact that there was some miraculous means by which he got to the other side of the lake. In verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So this is a kind of rebuke by Jesus. He just, he's saying to them, Look, you want me because I fed you, not because you saw and truly understood the sign of the loaves and the fish, not because you really understood what it meant. You're just sort of wanting me because I fed you. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 26. And then in verse 27, Jesus is going to take the conversation much deeper, which is going to provoke a question by the crowd that then sets up the rest of the chapter or the rest of Jesus' sermon called the Bread of Life Discourse. So he says here in verse 27, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So what is Jesus saying in verse 27? I think it's clear enough if we just read it slowly and think about it. He's saying, look, don't work for just earthly things. They were still thinking about what Jesus had done from them 
on a, on a horizontal and earthly, a kind of physical level. And he's saying, look, don't just chase your next meal, even if it came by miraculous means. Those things fade away. He's wanting to lift their eyes to himself so that they understand what the physical miracle of the feeding of the multitudes spiritually points to. And he's telling them, work, give your heart to, devote yourself to filling yourself with food that lasts. And of course, he's, he's speaking spiritually here. He's taking the tangible miracle and he's wanting to paint a spiritual picture from it. And he's wanting the people to see that. And what is that food? That food is clearly Jesus himself. He will go on to say that explicitly here in just a moment. In verse 28, then they said to him, and this is interesting, just notice the the, 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 the reaction of the human heart and the question that comes from the crowd. He's saying, don't work for earthly things, but work for eternal things. Seek the food that gives you eternal life. And then their first instinct, verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Well, on the surface, that sounds fair enough, like a good question, but I think it belies a kind of instinct of our natural heart that we, we naturally first look inward. And the crowd is a kind of picture of that. They're fallen. They, they, they're, they're looking for justification for something that they can do to acquire this eternal food. And verse 29, Jesus' response is one of the most important sentences, I think, in the whole chapter. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. So this is a massively important sentence. And it's, it's Jesus telling the crowd what God requires of them. Now this phrase, this is the work of God. So what, what does that mean? Is it, is it something that he is required? Is this the work that God requires of you? Or is this something that God is working in you to enable you to do? We could take it either way. What's this work? This is the work of God. This is what God requires of you, or this is the work of God that he's doing in you. Which is it? I think it's both. I think it's both. In fact, that's what we read earlier when Tyler read from Ephesians 2. Look at verses 8 and 9 of that text again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So Jesus is essentially telling the people, look, you must believe in me. This is what it means to do the work of God, to believe in me. And that's in a sense kind of a, something you must do. It's a work. And he says, and Paul says in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith or through belief. But this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so, so that no one may boast. So Jesus is telling them, to believe, and the work of God that he does in a sinner's heart is to enable them and make them believe. Jesus is telling them that. Jesus, in a sense, is preaching the gospel that Paul will later clearly outline for us in Ephesians and in Romans. For example, Romans chapter 3, this is what the Apostle Paul says later, basically just developing this sentence by Jesus with further clarity. He says, for we hold that no one, Romans 3.28, we hold that no one is justified by faith, that we hold that, that, that one is justified by faith 
apart from the works of the law. And so Paul, what is he doing? He's basically just explaining what Jesus has just told the crowd. You're not saved by things that you do. You're saved by your belief. This is the work that God requires of you. This is the mandate of heaven that you believe, you believe in the one whom he sent, his son whom he set his seal on, the bread from heaven. What does it mean to believe in him? Friends, it's more than just kind of cognitive agreement to, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God or that he lived and died and rose again. It's, it's actually more than that. It's to rest, to trust, to put your hope in, to, to rely on him, to know that there is a creator and we are the created and that we will stand before him one day. And what is our hope? That we have done a bunch of good things? that we gave to the church, that we participated in ministry, that we served in some way. No, that will not make a person acceptable before God. But only, the only thing that will is Jesus believing in what Jesus has done for us. He is the one that will satisfy this need of the human heart. This whole thing about the bread is just a picture Jesus is saying, I'm the one who will feed your soul. I'm the one who will be broken for you on the cross. So Jesus is telling the crowd, Jesus is preaching, really, justification by faith and not works. That's what Jesus is saying here in this text. Believe in me. Trust in me. Put your hope in me. Put all of your hope in me. And let's not, let's not distort what true saving faith or belief is. It's not just you just have to believe in Jesus. We prayed for these little ones to believe in Jesus today. And we're not just praying for them to have a kind of one-time confession or know the answers to the Sunday school question about what Jesus has done. Belief, true saving belief, is necessarily followed by some measure of obedience in our lives. That's what James says. Don't forget the message of James, James 2.17. So also faith, or this type of true saving belief by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. So true saving faith is going to be followed by some measure of obedience. Some measure of following Jesus. In fact, Jesus says this in John 14, which we will get to eventually. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But listen, I don't want you to be discouraged because I know, I know that there are people in this room that are racked with sin. They're racked with difficulty. You're racked with temptation. You, are, you come into this room beaten up. And I don't want you to hear this message that oh, all you got to do is believe. Okay, that's a kind of cheap grace. But I also don't want you to hear that your belief requires a kind of perfection of obedience that goes with it because that can be a kind of legalism. There's a kind of beautiful gospel balance here where we strive. And yes, you may be getting punched in the face by your flesh right now, but this is a word for you. Jesus is saying, believe in me and follow me. This bread that's broken for you is also the bread that will nourish you and strengthen you in the fight so that you can follow me. William Arnaud was a British theologian. It's been a while since I quoted him. I love William Arnaud, because of this quote, and he was 
a British pastor back in the mid-1800s, a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. And this is what Arnaud said. I'm paraphrasing it. He said that the difference, listen to this now, listen to this struggling Christian, the difference between a converted man and an unconverted man is not that one has sin and the other doesn't, but that the converted man is taking God's side against his sin, whereas the unconverted man is taking sin's side against God. But here's the great spiritual fight. Many people deceive themselves into thinking, well, I just got to believe, I got to confess the right thing, or they preach to a, a kind of cheap grace to themselves, and they think they're right with God, but actually they're taking sin side against God. Friends, you will not be saved by your perfect obedience to God. You are saved by Jesus' perfect obedience, and his perfect obedience, and his bread, metaphorically, spiritually speaking, strengthens you and enables you along with a hundred means of grace, like gathering together with other struggling brothers and sisters, enables you to fight and take God's side against your remaining sin. Jesus is calling the crowd to this. Verse 30, 31, they say, they said to him, now now I, I want us to appreciate, let's back up, okay, let's remember the context. Jesus has just fed the multitudes he walked on water. They're sort of clued into that because how did you get here? We're, okay, and listen to verses 30 and 31. Just, just take it in. So they said to him, and this is in response to his question, believe, believe. This is the work you have to do, believe. So they said to him, well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Uh, I, I just fed... I just fed 10,000 of you guys lunch. Um, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, what's going on here? This, This seems like a ridiculously audacious question. And on many levels, I think it really is. It, 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 It points to the way that our human heart just accuses God and just demands more, more, more. Well, wait a minute, okay, okay, you did this, well, what about this? But I think what's even deeper here is that these Old Testament, sort of Old Covenant, first century Jewish people are are sensing that Jesus is claiming to be superior than the Old Testament prophet Moses whom God used to feed them in the desert when they were wandering by dropping birds from heaven and manna from heaven. And so they're saying, I think, essentially what their question is, is that if if you're really better than Moses, then shouldn't we expect an even greater sign than Moses' sign? And in essence, I think embedded in that is they're basically saying, you know, this this feeding of 10,000 people here, out of a couple loaves of bread and a few fish. Oh, that's really not that big of a deal. Give us more, which is even more audacious and brazen. And in verse 32, Jesus said to them, just notice his patience. This is stunning. Then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. 
So he's saying, listen, it wasn't really Moses, but it was God working in Moses. And even that was just kind of a sign to show you the true bread that is coming. In fact, the whole Old Testament, if the Old Testament seems confusing to you, you are, you are not alone. Oftentimes the Old Testament, because we're traversing centuries and cultures, and it can seem kind of what's going on here in some of these Old Testament stories. Think of everything in the Old Testament in one way or another as a kind of sign, an arrow that is pointing to our need for the coming Savior. And even Israel wandering around in the desert in their rebellion and God being merciful with them and dropping food from the sky is not ultimately merely about God providing for his people in the moment, although clearly it is that. It is a picture of the true bread, the manna, the bread of life from heaven that will come. That's the point. Not just merely that God will meet your physical needs, but that in meeting your physical needs, he will meet your eternal needs through his son, the bread of heaven. And Jesus is telling them that's what Moses' miracle was all about. That's what yesterday was all about when I fed the multitudes. Verse 33, Jesus says, for the bread of God is he, he says it clearly now, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So there Jesus comes out when he says it. This is the true bread of life. He who comes down from heaven, he's speaking of himself, and he's going to clarify that even more directly here in just a moment. And what does this bread from heaven do? It gives life, notice here embedded in this, it gives life to the world, not just to the Jew but to the world, to Jews, Gentiles, to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, to everyone who will taste and see that the Lord is good. In verse 34, they said to him, Sir, give us, this is a good response, give us this bread always. Good answer. But we'll see as we continue in John 6 that, that still they don't quite get it. But more on that in the coming weeks. And so what does Jesus say in verse 35? Let's dip into the next paragraph. And next week, we're going to handle, Lord willing, verses 35 through 40 or so, which is just a, a really critical paragraph. And Jesus said to them, and this is really the heart of this chapter and this discourse. He says, I am me. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the first of one of seven statements of I am statements or what they call, are called in the Gospel of John where Jesus identifies himself with a picture, a word picture. And here he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I want to end with just three brief reflections and then pray for us. First, I want you to notice that the Gospel that gospel grace offends the self-righteous heart. Let's just admit that. The, the, the first instinct of the crowd is to say, what must we do? Jesus has just fed them. He's just walked on water. He's saying, believe in me. I mean, this is just grace, just, just being piled up in front of the crowd. And the first instinct of the crowd is to say, okay, fine, but what do 
I have to do in order to make myself right and do the work that God requires. Tell me to trust in Jesus and not myself. Well, give me proof. The heart, listen to this, our hearts are naturally offended by grace. We, since the garden, have been trying to justify ourselves, cover ourselves up with metaphorical fig leaves to make ourselves right with God, and it never works. We can't do it. We need something to be done for us. We need God to work in us. We, we can't do anything to please God in and of ourselves. And when Jesus comes to the crowd and he tells them, believe, their first instinct is to look in themselves for something that they can do. We, we're, we're very much like that. Secondly, is that believing, and trusting, and hoping in Jesus is really the heart of the matter. It's the heart of the message of the Bible. It's the heart of John. It's the heart of the Christian life. Believing, believing. Not, not just knowing facts about, but, but resting in, putting your hope in, trusting, leaning on, hoping in Jesus is the heart of the matter. Friends, that's the most important thing. As one of your pastors, that is my most important responsibility to remind you of that. And for those of you that haven't done it yet, to plead with you that you do that, that that is what God requires of you, to believe, to trust, to put your hope in Jesus. One of the things we do when somebody wants to become a member of Crosspoint, and let me just take a, a brief little side and talk about the importance of membership. Now, you're all, anybody's welcome to come to Crosspoint. Anybody is welcome to come into this sanctuary and join with us on Sunday mornings and any of our other public gatherings. But we think that the Bible is really clear that Christians in particular should be in a kind of relationship with one another in a local setting to where they're accountable to one another. In the New Testament, oftentimes Paul would write to local Christians in a local church, and he would speak to them about their responsibilities to one another. And the reason why they are to live in such a kind of way of accountability with one another is because it is one of the means of grace or one of the channels, one of the ways by which God protects and preserves his people. He, he makes us responsible for one another. And so the church should be a kind of family. It's a messy family. We got crazy uncles and we got rebellious kids. I mean, we got some crazy uncles and we got some, some strange aunts. And we, we got a, a weird pastor. I mean, I mean it's just it's part of being in a family, okay? It's part of God's design, okay? And you commit to that and you bear with all of those people that are really, really hard to love and not like you as opposed to what is a very common thing in American church culture is to bounce around from church to church that just kind of meets your fancy at that particular season in your life. That's terrible. That's a terrible way to live the Christian life. And so we think that there, certainly there are valid reasons to leave a church at various times, but we think, we think church, a kind, of, a kind of formal understanding of who's sort of a member of the church and who's not, is biblical. We think that's good. We think that's wise. We think that you should pursue that. 
if you have been here for a while. And if this isn't the best church for you, we, we will be glad to recommend another Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church for you in this city that might be a better fit for you. We understand that. We don't, we're not under any illusions that we are the best church around. My point is, though, is that we take membership seriously. And one of the ways by which we take it seriously is we, when a person desires to join the church, they go through our membership class, and then they sit down with one of the pastors. And one of the questions we ask them is, how did you become a Christian, and what, what, what do you believe the gospel is? And I love, that's one of my favorite things to do as a pastor, is to hear the work of grace in a person's heart and to make sure that they have a right understanding of what it means to be right with God. Because in our culture, sometimes the answers to that question are all over the map. You know those man-on-the-street interviews where somebody will just be kind of downtown with a microphone and they're just asking people questions, you know, just kind of, all... well, if you were just to go downtown Columbus and you were just to ask people a question like, like, what does it mean to be a Christian? You would get a bunch of answers and probably a majority of them would not be right biblically. Believing in Jesus is not it's not, it's not a, oh, I, I do good things. What does it mean to be right with God? Oh, I, I've done this. Or, you know, my mom played the piano at the church downtown. Or my dad used to be a deacon. Or my, my grandfather's the pastor. Or whatever. And, you know, I, I never use grandfather analogies um, because I'm not a, I, 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 like, I am a grandfather now of a child in the womb. So I'm going to be a grandfather in March. Praise God. So I'm going to start using grandfather. So my little grandchild cannot say that I'm right with God because my grandfather is the pastor. That sounds weird, but I'm going to start owning it. Okay? You, you can't say you're right with God because of this or that or because you did that or because you're good or because, friends, this is the heart of the matter. This is the beginning of the Christian life. This is the most important question that is asked of you. What does it mean to be right with God, to trust, to hope, to put all of your eggs in Jesus' basket, to know that you have nothing good in yourself that can commend you to God? You're a sinner in one way or another, and the only hope you have is not your righteousness, not your good deeds, not your church attendance, not your family heritage, not your gifts, nothing in my hands I bring, but holy in Jesus' name I trust in him alone. That's what it means, believing, trusting, hoping, faith in Jesus. Now don't be, don't be tricked by this, okay? Do not be discouraged if you think that your faith is weak because here's where the good news gets even better. You're not saved by the strength of your faith. You're saved by the strength of the object of your faith, which is Jesus. Listen to this. Hebrews 1 verse 11. Now faith or believing, being right with God through the work of his son. That's embedded in that word, biblically, faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, meaning that I know that what Jesus said is true, that he has washed me of all my sin, and that he's coming back someday to take me home. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction, the belief, the resolve of things not seen. And then the rest of Hebrews 11 is a description of people 
who had varying degrees of faith, some stronger, some weaker, but who all made it home because their faith was not in themselves and their faith, as strong or weak as it may have been, is in Jesus who is strong enough to save the weakest of his saints. In fact, friends, I want to say, I want to go even a step further. If you feel like your faith is weak and you are filled with doubt and you look at your life and it hasn't been marked by great acts of courage in following God, I want to say to you, and listen to me carefully here, I am not condoning a kind of complacency, but I want to say that God is glorified by your trembling, shaking hand. God doesn't need a strong arm to grab a hold of him. He grabs a hold of your trembling hand, and he's the one that saves you, not yourself. But friends, here's, the, here's what Jesus is calling for. Will you believe? Will you look outside of yourself? Will you, will you finally stop making it about yourself? And so when you stand before somebody someday and they ask you a question, whether it's in a member interview or some other setting, what does it mean to be right with God? The answer is in nothing in yourself. It's in Christ that he has worked in me a belief. He's given me faith. He's opened my eyes and I'm trusting in him. That's what it means. That's what Jesus is calling for. That's the heart of the matter. It doesn't matter if your kid gets a scholarship. It doesn't matter if they get the part in the play. It doesn't matter if they're a straight-A student if they don't know Jesus. Reflection number three. And listen, listen, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're the sharpest dude in the unit. It doesn't matter if you're the highest guy on the corporate ladder. It doesn't matter if you ladder up to the nicest neighborhood. It means nothing, nothing without Jesus. Nothing. Those things are fine. They're not inherently sinful. But the heart of the matter is will you believe in Jesus? What does God require of you? To be a good citizen? To give to the poor? No! Those things follow maybe. What is the heart of the matter is trusting and believing in the bread of heaven. Jesus. Reflection three. Only Jesus can ultimately satisfy and truly satisfy us. Only Jesus. Friends, I'm not calling for a detached mystical spirituality when I say that it's just about believing in Jesus. No, God gives us real physical gifts in a real physical world, and we are called to enjoy them. Praise God for food, for recreation, for work, for marriage, for achievement, for children, for community, for righteous pleasures of all kinds. I'm not calling that we simply believe and then we go into a corner and we just sort of meditate until Jesus comes back. No, God has given us real gifts. He has given us godly ambition. He has given us a real earthly, fleshly world that we are to work and cultivate and enjoy. And these gifts are meant to be very, very satisfying. 
I was particularly satisfied yesterday when I saw the Army team win a game, and then I flipped over, and I saw Navy losing. I thought it was just, this is wonderful. This is, I thought of my good friend Matt Walsh, who is a retire, retired Naval officer, and I thought, oh, poor Matt. And then I was particularly satisfied in the good gift of Army winning and Navy losing. I am not calling for a detached, a detached spirituality. But friends, I am saying that if you live for these things, and I think this is the message of Jesus, I think this is what this text is calling us to, if you live ultimately for these things, they will turn on you. They will become your captor, and you will become their slave. If the achievement, if the marriage, if the recreation, if the promotion, if the child's success, if whatever it is, if it is the thing that you're really going for, if it's the thing that you're working ultimately for, it will turn on you and it will put you in chains. If you make your marriage an idol, if you make your spouse and what they can give you your idol, it will turn on you and you will be disappointed because no matter how amazing the person is that you're married to, they are not equipped, they were not made to be worshipped. Our children, and we, we live in a culture that we worship children. We worship our children's success. And I think a lot of that has to do with our insecurity. We just want to be made much of through the success of our children. And when our children disappoint us, as all people will disappoint other people in relationships, we find that the idol of parenting the perfect children will be our captor that turns on us. If we worship the idol of job, or money, success, promotion, it will turn on us. But friends, I'm not, I'm not up here on some perch saying, do you, do you hear this now, boys and girls? Run along and stop, be aware of your idols and stop worshiping them. I am the chief idolater. One of the reasons that I think I needed a sabbatical this past summer is because I am aware of how easy it is for me to make an idol out of pastoring and an idol out of ministry. And I can say all the right things, I can preach decent sermons, but there often lurks in my heart this, this deceptive voice that says, you are validated by how this church is doing in some ambiguous, unattainable metric that exists in my warped mind. And that will not satisfy you. In fact, it will turn into your slave master. It will put you in chains and it will make you work for nothing. And it will run you into the ground. And I have been prone to that. And the word for me and the word for you is Jesus' words in verse 35. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Yeah, God, 
I, praise God, these are good and noble ambitions. I want to see people built up. I want to see more people coming. I want to see people come to faith. I want to see the church doing well. That's a, that's a noble, noble thing. That's a good thing. As long as it is a result of my hunger for Jesus and not the thing I'm ultimately thirsting for. It's a wonderful thing for your kid to do well. It's a wonderful thing for you to get a promotion. It's a wonderful thing for you to get a ranger tab. All those things can be great. But if they are the primary thing, they will become the enslaving thing. And Jesus is saying here that you come to me. I am the only one that can satisfy your hearts that were made to worship. Worship, feast on me. That's the text. Let me pray. Lord, use this. Lord, convict us, wound us, heal us. Wound me, wound me, Lord. Wound me and heal me. And do the same for my friends in this room. For your good pleasure, in Jesus' name.